You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. We're uh, in our second in the series called Fathom, which is a study in the letter of Ephesians, and we're trying to fathom the height and depth and breadth and width of the love of God. It's like trying to measure that is almost like trying to measure the ocean, or better, the universe. It's really not possible, but you can be in awe of it more and more. And I'm hoping today, in chapter 2 of Ephesians, as we look at the first 10 verses, you will be able to be more in awe of God's grace. I believe Helen was someone, if you knew her, you would say she got it. She understood what grace was for herself, as well as how she would share it with others. And that was what was behind the whole message of Mission Haiti as well. Okay, So uh, we're going to look at what grace means today. And one of the questions is, do you, do you fathom it? Do you get it? Uh, if you think grace is just a nice little attribute on kind of the sidelight, you know, kind of with uh, God's omniscience and omnipotence, and oh, I guess he's gracious too, you probably aren't understanding the depth of it. And if you think it's just a nice thing that God is gracious or that it's nice to be kind of nice to other people, I don't think you're getting it. When we read in Ephesians chapter 2 what grace all means and what it means, we're going to see these three different points that are going to come up. I'm just praying that we all really fully kind of appropriate this, to grasp it. That's kind of the word, to, to understand grace. Because without grace, there's nothing to Christianity, by the way. Um, and with grace, we can change the world. Let's read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedient, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us. In Christ Jesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not of results of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Grace. I said we need to fathom the height and breadth and width and depth of what this is. And when you do, I think the response is going to be just awe and wonder. Awe and wonder and gratitude and joy. But what is grace? How do you define that word? I mean, we probably use it in a million different ways. And in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, I think it comes up with part of the best definition in this passage. It is, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works. So right there, you kind of get the definition that grace is gift. It's free. You don't earn it. You can't deserve it. It's given. Okay? But um, you get a lot of free things in life. 
you probably got a lot of free advice, and that's about what it's worth, right? Um, or you can get a lot of gifts in life, but they don't necessarily change your life. For instance, um, your child might have gotten a Nintendo Switch at Christmas or maybe birthday. You got one? Yeah, did it change your life? Not really. No, it's just more of the same, by the way. I know, it might have been really cool for like a week. Yeah, right? Just like everything else. But you had many other ways to entertain yourself, many other things to do with your time. It didn't really change anything. So think of the gifts in your life that actually changed you. Do you understand what I mean by that? Not the things that are, you know, you go up to a conference or a, con a convocation or something like that, you're going to get probably free T-shirts and notepads and pencils, right? But you have plenty of others. And they don't change your life. They're free. Now imagine this. You are a poor person in Haiti. And you kind of heard a little about that in this video. You're a poor person in Haiti, no running water, no electricity, absolutely no job because the economy there is just in shambles. And you need an operation to save your life. But the medical care is not there even in the entire nation of Haiti. And you couldn't afford it even if it were. And there's no way to get there from here, etc. I mean, your whole life, and you're going like, well, I'm going to die. But then somebody comes along, and Mission Haiti has done this a couple times. Someone comes along, they hear about your situation, and they pay for the whole thing freely, no strings attached. Someone might come along, liquidate things, sell things off, give up things that they would, and they pay for you to fly to the United States to get the medical treatment you need and fly you back everything. That's a little different of a free gift, isn't it? Makes all the difference. When we say grace is a free gift from God, we're not talking about a Nintendo, Nintendo Switch or a T-shirt or a notepad. We're talking about a life-changing gift that has changed your entire eternity. And so today, from this passage, we're going to learn these three things. Um, first of all, that grace is indispensable. Secondly, that it is infinitely costly. And thirdly, that it will bring you then, therefore, unfathomable joy. I can hardly say that word, unfathomable. Watch it, man. That's, that one's a tough one. But it's indispensable. And this is where, why is it indispensable? It's partly because of our condition. And this comes up in that first verse. And I we might have passed over it and you didn't see it, but it said this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead. There's a big difference. And I don't, <laughs> what a week. I had, I finished this sermon on Wednesday. I know you go like, what? Yeah, I do. I try to get them all done so I don't have to deal with it. And it wasn't until Thursday that Helen passed away. And so I'm reading this this morning going like, Oof, well, um, but there is a big difference between being sick and being dead. And I don't have to go into the details of that necessarily, but if uh, Paul could have said, and you were sick in your transgressions and sins, that you were in a bad place, but I mean, you needed just a little sickness. There are degrees of it. You can have a cold. You can be hospitalized. Um, 
And you might need a doctor when you're sick, and maybe not. You might just get better on your own. But when you're dead, you don't even need a doctor. You need a resurrection. And that's what Paul is saying about us in this passage. He's not saying that we get to call on God and say, Dr. God, you know, can you give me a tonic here or a pill because I just need a little help? Or can you show me what therapy I should follow to get better? It's not about that at all. Paul says that we are dead in our transgressions and sins. What does he mean by that? Now, I want to tell you what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean that everybody in this world right now is as bad as they could be. Okay, No, you could be worse uh, in in terms of what you do. Uh, But what he is saying is that regardless of who you are, whether you're moral or immoral, law-abiding citizen or not, whether you are religious or irreligious, you are equally dead in your relationship to God and connection to God. And you might go, what? Yes, that's what he's saying. And we'll get into that more. He is also not saying, though, in this passage that everybody is as bad as everybody else. That's not what we're saying, okay? But he is saying that we are equally dead in our spiritual life to God. As Paul would say in Romans chapter 3, no one seeks after God. And you might say, wait a minute, Uh, I see a lot of people in this world, and especially in America, most people believe in God, and most people are praying, and they seem to be seeking after God, and I'll have to ask, which God are they seeking? Is it the real God, or is it the one that we've projected and want God to be? And we're going to talk about that more. I don't know if you've ever um, been with families. So many people in the United States have faced addictions within their family system, whether it's uncles, aunts, brothers, cousins, um, even a, a nuclear family member. And it's, it's difficult, and it's a process, and everybody seems to try to help But often what happens over a short period of time or a long period of time, all the, quote, help is actually a form of codependency. And there is a point at some point in the family system, if they've been working with and figuring things out and understanding, not the uh, person with the addiction necessarily, but the others, they, they might come to a point, and pastors hear this once in a while, and it's a great breakthrough when it happens, when they say, you know, I thought I was actually helping I thought I was actually um, serving this person, being sacrificial. I was covering up for him. I was doing this. I was doing that. But I was trying to control this. But it wasn't my selflessness actually was probably a bit selfish. I kind of needed the person to have that addiction. I needed them to be bad so I could feel good about myself. I needed to be able to lecture them and look down at them and think how terrible of them and feel like the victim in this situation instead of realizing that my selflessness and everything that I was doing was really a selfishness. I don't know if you've ever seen that happen, but it can happen. It's a tough thing to see and experience, but it's what is happening sort of with what Paul is talking about here, that everyone is dead in their relationship to God. Um, The Bible says the people who are looking good, who are trying to be good, who are looking moral, upstanding citizens, you know, we tend to think, oh, that person is doing it. Their selflessness 
may be a form of selfishness. Do you understand? Because um, uh, I need to look good to have, you know, to gain my um, esteem from you. I need to look good to feel better about myself and the yucky stuff I've done to make up for. I, there are so many different ways that many things I do in life look good or try to be good, but are not necessarily out of the best motives because it's more about me than about them. Um, I tell my students, like I, I've been teaching once in a while contemporary world religions at Florida Gulf Coast University. And in the class, we get to a point where there is a religious uh, person that I'm interviewing who talks about trying to do selfless acts. Um, and that's his way of gaining uh, redemption by doing absolutely selfless acts for other people. And in that interview, as well as to the students in the class, I say, I cannot think of one selfless act I've ever done in my entire life. And they're like, what? Man, are you that selfish? And I said, I've gone to Nicaragua and built houses there. I've gone to Haiti and helped with you know, the schools. I've given a lot of money away to charity. I have built houses with Habitat for Humanity. You, know, you name it. I've counseled people. I've listened to people. But none of it is purely selfless. Never. There's always something for me in it. That's the reality of my human condition. You might do it because you need to gain respect from others or feel like you're in control of the situation or you, do, you give in order to not be needy and have to receive and be in a vulnerable position. You might do it to ward off bad things. You know, like if I keep doing good things, then maybe the bad stuff won't happen to me but to somebody else. We're always trying to figure out why did something happen to somebody else and we want to be able to have something in our control that said they, did it, they must have done something bad in order to deserve that and I... Um, can avoid that by just doing good things. Well, then here we have Helen, who I think is one of the most giving people I've known, and yet she would never say that God, you know, that, that, that would ward off bad things happening in her life. She just, you know what I mean? We've got to avoid, but that's kind of the theology that is built into us. And we think, here's an indicator, by the way to see if you're really seeking yourself and using God to do it, seeking your benefit, or you're se truly seeking the real God. If things do happen in your life that go south, that don't go the way that you want, that you've prayed for and you don't get, and instead of being, okay, Lord, great, you're angry, you're upset, you're bargaining with him, you're trying to, what were you seeking for in the first place? See what I'm getting at? No one really is seeking after God. And besides, um, when we, quote, seek after God, I don't think it's the true God, the biblical God. So often what we are seeking is just a projection of our own wish dreams, uh, seeking a God of rewards and punishments, seeking a God who will bless me for doing good and punishing those people for doing bad. That is not the God of the Bible. Not. God cannot be manipulated. 
God is not controlled by your actions. God is not this celestial Skinner box that you just keep pressing the prayer button to get whatever you want and reward, you know, do a little dance, do a little chancel prance, do whatever you can, do whatever ritual you go through, do all these good things, pray the right prayers, the formulas, etc. name it and claim it, and then God gives it to you. That is not the God of the Bible. Trying to gin up your sincerity or your emotion or trying to gin up your remorse and your regret so that somehow you can get God to do what you want him to do. That's making God into your own image. That is not seeking after the real God. You're just seeking a God for the power that he might have. And God says, then you're not really seeking my heart. You're not even seeking me. I think Russell Moore I'm reading a book by him right now. He said it well. He said, defining God in terms of power leads precisely to the sort of mentality folk found in the folk religion of Baal. This is an Old Testament um, Canaanite fertility cult religion. And the mentality did not die out when the fire was called down from heaven. That's what Elijah did on Mount Carmel. But it is alive and well today, albeit in different names. That's one of the reasons I've argued for years that the so-called prosperity gospel is not a branch of historic Christianity, nor is it a new religious movement. The prosperity gospel is a revival movement reviving ancient Canaanite fertility worship. This is not the gospel of Jesus Christ, but witchcraft. I'm sorry to say, that's what I would be seeking. Get God to do things for me. We're all dead to God. We're not just sick. There are no degrees. No one is good. That's why God's grace is indispensable. Indispensable. Without it, I'm lost. I'm dead. That's what this text says. And when we receive it, you know what it does? Creates humility. I mean, real humility. So Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, his first Word, his first beatitude, blessed are, he says, the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that word poor in spirit doesn't mean blessed are those who are in a little of a pinch. Blessed are those who need a little help. The word is really spiritually bankrupt, zip, zero, nada, nothing. And even my nothingness is nothing. I mean, it's not like, oh, here's my nothingness now, God. You can give me. No, it's nothing. It's absolutely void. of. It's that I go before God. If, if I have anything, I'm going to bargain with God. But when I realize I have nothing on God but his promises, there's no more bargaining on, with God. And I actually, that's when I receive the free gift of grace. And the humility that that produces then turns to those who I know around me, and I can look around and say, huh, you know, if somebody um, <laughs> is facing difficulties in life, I don't look at them and say, well, you know, that's probably what they deserve. You know, or, and I can't look at anyone and say, well, that has been moral, has moral failings and go like, oh, well, you know, at least that. All of a sudden, I have much more compassion on others, a much more understanding. Uh, for like Helen going to Haiti, she sees brothers and sisters that for no apparent reason and no explanation that she could ever come up with saying that they deserve the poverty and be born in the, that's, that's just hogwash. And she knew it. And all that she could do is, just like we could do, is look and say, hey, 
We have opportunities here to serve and to give and to lift up and to care. That's what grace does. So it's indispensable. And when we realize it's indispensable, we stop uh, looking down at anyone else. We also stop beating ourselves up. Why? Just because you need to be nice to yourself? No. Because <laughs> I've done this many times. You've probably done it too. Beating yourself up, you know what I'm doing? I'm trying to deserve forgiveness by beating myself up and guilting myself enough. You know, if I feel bad enough about stuff, then God might be good to me. That too, you just throw all that out. Instead, you just receive with humility what God wants to offer you freely. It's indispensable. Secondly, it's infinitely costly. These points are going to be shorter. Okay. <laughs> I know. I know where we're at. Okay. Um, this comes in that middle passage, Ephesians 2, 4 to 7. You can see that up here. God, rich in his mercy because of great love. And there are three verbs in this. Made us alive together, raised us up with him, and seated us with him. All three of them are, uh, have sin at the beginning, these Greek words, uh, I think the next slide has the Greek words on it. Yes, and I ain't going to try to pronounce them, okay? Sunopoeo, sunagero, and sunkaithidzo. But, uh, well, I guess I did. But that basically means to make alive together with, to raise together with, to seat together with. What he is saying is that every, you are incorporated into the very life of Jesus Christ. You are united with Jesus Christ. You are connected to him so that whatever he deserves, you get. Isn't that wild? The moment you believed everything that he earned through his perfect life, his complete sacrificial death and his glorious resurrection are now yours. And you are with Christ, in Christ, completely there. And the costly nature of this is there's a backside to this. That everything that is his is now yours, but everything that is yours is now his. He gets all my crap. He gets all my sin. He gets all my mis mistakes. There are much more than that. He gets all my rebellion. He gets all everything that I deserve. He takes on himself. That is why Paul writes in 2 uh, Corinthians, he who knew no sin made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what did I deserve? Not just physical death, but eternal disconnection from God have nothing to do with me death. You know, when Jesus is on the cross, you will notice the words that he cries out from the cross. When he does cry out in agony, he doesn't go like, oh, my hands, man, do they hurt. That would be me. You know, my feet, ow, that nail hurts. You know, the side, the back, the brow, or ow, your, your insults at me, oh, they really hurt. He cries out the one thing that he delighted in the most, the one thing that he wanted the most, the one thing he always had had the, all the time. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what he loses. to gain you, to have you, so that you do not lose that. That's, I can't even, we cannot quantify 
the cost that Jesus paid. So remember when we talked about the free gift of flying someone out of Haiti to the United States to give them, and maybe someone liquidated some of their assets to do that. Jesus didn't just liquidate his assets. He poured out his very life on the cross. That's the cost. And how do you respond to that? I think this is where unfathomable joy and gratitude come in. So imagine another story. Uh, Somebody comes over to your house this week, and uh, you're not home, but he has the code or the key. You know, it's that kind of a friend, somebody who's really close to you. He comes into your house. He says, hey, I was over this week at your house, and you weren't there, but I noticed on your kitchen table this bill um, that you owed. And, um, well, I just want to let you know I paid that for you. Now, how are you going to respond to that? It depends how big the bill was, right? (laughs) So if it was your phone bill from last uh, month, you know, hey, gee, thanks, that's great. But what if, for the last few years, you've had such medical debt because, quite honestly, (laughs) you know, you had all these things happen to you, and you are dealing with bill collectors out the yin-yang who are, you know, harassing you day after day, asking to just collect some of the half a million dollars you owe, and you have, you're afraid you're going to go bankrupt, you're going to lose everything that you, and, and you are ashamed of the fact that you got into this situation in the first place, and your friend saw that bill and paid the whole price of that. I don't think you'd just say, gee, that was nice. You would live the rest of your life in response to such graciousness. That's what's going on here in this text. That's what's going on here in this text where it says, basically, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's like, wow, what else do I get to do with my life? So what Helen did for 20 years, after the earthquake in Haiti, that started a lot of it for her, was to just try to live that way. I think you do too. You get to follow Jesus. You get to do the things that Jesus did. And you get to do it for the reasons Jesus did it, just out of love. You don't have to even keep track of it. You don't even have to keep, you don't, there is no need to be uh, trying to add it up and figure it all out. You just keep doing and doing and doing simply because how else to the unfathomable grace of God in Jesus Christ? How else? I don't know if you know this story. (coughs) I think you probably do. One of the greatest pieces of literature (coughs) that deals with grace in all of Western civilization is Les Miserables. Uh, Have you seen the movie or the musical? And in it, Jean Valjean, who's been in prison unjustly, becomes bitter in prison, comes out of prison and decides to just kind of give it to the system and do whatever. Um, He is taken in by a a, uh, Catholic bishop at one moment in time 
And though he's shown grace and mercy and care by this bishop, that night John Veljohn steals his silverware and takes off because he is so bitter at the world and justifies it because he's been shafted for years of his life because he was put in prison. And Jean Valjean gets caught, right? And he comes back to, uh, the, the, the police bring him back to the cardinal, and they say, hey, we caught this thief. He stole your silverware. And you know what the cardinal does, right? He's gracious beyond belief. He goes, oh, no, 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 no. He didn't, no, I gave him the silver. Oh, by the way, here are the silver candlesticks. And the police leave, shocked, and then the cardinal says, um, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil but to good. It is your soul that I buy from you. I withdraw it from your black thoughts and the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. Do you realize Jesus has said basically that to you? You are no longer dead. You are alive. You are no longer in sin, you are in grace. I have purchased your soul by my very life. I am withdrawing your black thoughts and that spirit of perdition from you. And you are now a gift of God to this world. Fathom that grace. Indispensable, unobtainable on your own, costly, and giving you that kind of joy. Let's pray. Lord God, oh, this has been a week, and uh, we had thought potentially, with where we were at in this pandemic, that our church would not have suffered a direct loss, but maybe just some indirect inconveniences and difficulties or people that we knew that had faced COVID in this way, but Lord, this is a week that we face the reality of our, our, <laughs> our vulnerabilities. For Helen's family, Lord, we now pray for your comfort and peace. We thank you that she received your grace, that she knew to have just empty hands before you, that she did not try to negotiate with you, that she just received freely the gifts, and then gave them out to others as well, Lord God. And we pray that we would respond the same. We pray, Lord, that you would comfort us in the days ahead. We also lift up to you today um, Rachel and Kai, um, Becky Llewellyn's um, daughter-in-law and her grandson. Rachel now with a tumor in her chest, Lord, we don't know what that is. We don't know what's going on with it. We pray, Lord, that the biopsy comes back and and they're just amazed that it's nothing much. We pray for Kai and the brain tumor that he has, and we pray, Lord, that you would bring your healing there at such a young age. We pray for Chris, who also has a brain tumor, Lord, um, the Grisky's grandson. We lift up to you, Chris Rodriguez. Lord, we don't know what all of her ailments are right now. The doctors are still a bit confounded. We pray that you would work there. Lord, for Evelyn, um, as she is recovering at home after surgery, we pray that you bring uh, relief from any pain, that you work through the physical therapy, that we would come alongside of her and her children in whatever they need. Lord God, for Lloyd, 
we pray, Lord God, your will is done and you are glorified in him. We know his condition right now, Lord, that he does have COVID and that he's been dealing with Parkinson's and you know the state that he is in, Lord. We commend him into your care and we pray you would show your mercy to him and to us. And Lord, that we here at Thrive would be amazed at the width and breadth and height and depth of your love for us, your grace toward us, how you have us now, Lord, and that we would respond and say, we are your workmanship, Lord. We've been created in Christ Jesus now to do the works that you've given us to do, and we ask that you would do them through us. All of these things we pray, Lord Jesus, in your name, amen.